If you're watching a, a film, there are often bits, particularly early on, which don't seem to have any relevance to the plot. But you know that if they have been included in the film, there must be a reason for them. But it's only towards the end of the movie that the reason you were shown those scenes starts to make sense. And as the film reaches its climax, you say to yourself, so that's what that was all about. And there's a sense of that in this chapter. Joseph has been snatched away from his homeland as a boy of 17. When the events of this chapter take place, he's 30 years old. For almost half his life, he's been living away from home. He's gone through some very difficult times. He's spent a chunk of that time in prison. He's experienced a particular disappointment uh, two years before this of thinking he was going to get out and then it didn't happen. Why did God allow all these things to happen to him? What was God's purpose in all this? Joseph must have wondered that at times. But in this chapter, it all begins to make sense. As Joseph would later say, God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. After years of darkness, this is a chapter in which light begins to dawn. And we're going to look at this chapter tonight under the theme of Joseph's exaltation. Uh, Joseph's exaltation. And we'll come back, God willing, next Lord's Day evening and look specifically in more detail at some of the closing verses and particularly Pharaoh's words to the Egyptians in verse 55 where he says, Go to Joseph. But tonight we'll look at the rest of the chapter as we see Joseph being exalted. One of the things that we've been doing as we've gone through the story of Joseph is looking at some of the parallels between Joseph and the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're, you're brand new to church or whether you've been in church for a while, it's important to remember when reading the Old Testament that you're not reading a different story from the new Rather, the whole Bible from the beginning to the end is about God's great plan to save a people for himself. The fact that Jesus would come to earth had been part of God's plan all along. And so in the Old Testament, we have prophecies about him coming. And in the prophets, priests and kings in the Old Testament, we have pictures of what the Lord Jesus would be like. And there are some Old Testament characters who particularly point us to Jesus, one of whom is Joseph. The fact that the story of Joseph takes up 13 chapters of the book of Genesis is significant. It's such a huge chunk of the book that it's surely a little hint that there's something particularly special about Joseph. And in nearly every detail of Joseph's life, we see things that point us forward to the Lord Jesus. One older commentator, A.W. Pink, has a commentary in Genesis and he lists 101 parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. And one big connection between Joseph and Jesus is that they both went through a period of humiliation and then they experienced exaltation. Joseph was humbled 
And then he was exalted and so was Jesus. One of the, the great summaries of the Bible's teaching is the shorter catechism. And it asks the question, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And here's the answer for which they give a Bible reference for each phrase. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So that was Christ's humiliation. Did you notice it starts with him being born? Even to be born into this world as a, a king would have been humiliating for the Lord Jesus. Never mind being born into a lowly family. But what about Joseph's humiliation? If we were to ask the question, wherein did Joseph's humiliation consist? Well, we could say that it consisted in him being hated by his brothers, in being sold as a slave, in being falsely accused, in being sent to prison, and in being left to rot there. In verse 14 of our chapter, the prison is called a pit. Joseph has gone down to the depths. But having gone through all those years of humiliation, he's now going to be lifted up. What did Christ's humiliation consist of? Well, again, if we were to turn back to the Shorter Catechism, it would tell us Christ's exaltation consisted in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. And that exaltation of Jesus to the Father's right hand is patterned for us here as Joseph is exalted to Pharaoh's right hand. So what are the steps of Joseph's exaltation in this chapter? Well, as we've seen, the first step in verse 15 is he, or 14, sorry, he's raised out of the pit. He's taken out of prison. Two whole years after Joseph had interpreted the dreams of his fellow prisoners, two whole years after he'd asked the cupbearer to remember him, the Pharaoh and the cupbearer had forgotten Pharaoh has two dreams. The, the third sequence of two dreams in the Joseph story. Joseph himself has two dreams. Then uh, the, the cupbearer and the baker, they have a dream each. And now again, two dreams side by side. Pharaoh is troubled by them. And in the morning he calls for all the magicians of the land of Egypt, all the wise men to come. But none of them can help. All the wisdom of Egypt can't help him. Have you ever got to the point where you've realised that human wisdom can't help you? It's not a, a nice place to be, but it's a good place to be. And that's Pharaoh here. He doesn't realise it yet, but, but he has reached the point where he needs the wisdom that only God can give him. 
And at this point, the cupbearer finally remembers about Joseph. I wonder, boys and girls, if you can think of anyone else in the Bible who was a cupbearer. There was a man that that we looked at uh, a few months ago. He was a cupbearer. His name was Nehemiah. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. Uh, And a cupbearer was someone who would always be going in to the king. Any time the king wanted something to drink, he'd he'd call on the cupbearer. Any time the king was eating, the cupbearer would be there. Uh, So... uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer would have been uh, someone who, who, who was uh, with him quite a lot, who, who was trusted uh, by him. And so uh, the cupbearer is in a good position to, to intervene. He, he realizes what's going on. He remembers about Joseph and he speaks. Uh, two years after he promised, uh, but finally he, he rem- reminds uh, or he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. And Pharaoh listens to his cupbearer. He calls for Joseph. Joseph gets cleaned up and comes into him. And Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. And perhaps we're, we're thinking, well, now is Joseph's chance to promote himself. Now is his chance to bask in his glory. Now is his chance to make sure that Pharaoh will see him as so important and indispensable that there will be no question of him going back to prison. After all that Joseph has has been through, surely now is his opportunity to enjoy his moment in the limelight. But not Joseph. It doesn't seem to have entered his mind to use this as an opportunity for self-promotion. Just as Daniel would do in a similar situation many years later, Joseph turns the spotlight on God. Pharaoh is in effect saying, Joseph, the spotlight's on you. The stage is yours. Joseph is saying, no, no, let's put the spotlight on God. Uh, This is what Joseph had done before with the cupbearer and the baker. They told him about their dreams. They said, there's no one to interpret them. He said, do not interpretations belong to the Lord? He doesn't say, right, Lad, sit down, I'll help you. I know about dreams. He, he, he points to God. And so it's not false modesty in verse 16 when Joseph says it's not in me. It, it genuinely isn't in him. Uh, and Joseph is always wanting to point beyond himself to God. Maybe we felt the temptation, you know, someone has praised us for something and, and we've given God the credit with, with our lips, but... But secretly we enjoy the praise. But for Joseph, his instinctive reaction is to point people to God. To him, it just seems obvious. He knew these dreams were God speaking. And so if you want to know what God is saying, you need to go to God to find the answers. For for Joseph, it's just obvious. Why would you look anywhere else? So yes, we are thinking about Joseph's exaltation tonight. But this is not something that Joseph has sought for himself. He has waited on God's timing. He's had a dream uh, when he was young that one day he would be exalted. But, but he hasn't gone around and said, well, this is clearly God's will for my life. So, so I'm going to force it. I, I'm going to, to take any opportunity I have to exalt myself because surely God wants it for me. No, he waits on God. 
And so Joseph's exaltation comes not because he he takes his chances to engage in self-promotion, but because he waits on God, uh, and God is the one who will exalt him. And so it can be said of Joseph here, as it's said of the Lord Jesus in Philippians 2, that God has highly exalted him. It's Jesus and it's also Joseph. God has highly exalted him. And so Joseph says, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favourable answer. At this point, Pharaoh tells Joseph the dreams and Joseph gives the interpretation. Again, Joseph puts the interpretation on God. It's not just something Joseph says at the beginning. He says, verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So this isn't fortune telling. It's not Joseph telling Pharaoh what fate has decided. But it is God revealing to Pharaoh what he is going to do. And isn't that great to to know that about our future, that it's not left to fate, but it is what God has decided to do. And his plans are always for our best. Joseph then tells Pharaoh what God has revealed. There are going to be seven years of of plenty. Uh, Boys and girls, that's seven years where there's going to be lots and lots and lots and lots of food. And then seven years where there's going to be no food. And Joseph tells Pharaoh what needs to be done during the first seven years in order to prepare for the second seven years. Uh, One of A.W. Pink's 101 links between uh, Joseph and Jesus is that Jesus is described as a wonderful counsellor. And we see the same with Joseph here. It's, it's, It's certainly wonderful Counsel, a wise counsel that Joseph gives to Pharaoh. And in response, Joseph not only listens to, or Pharaoh not only listens to Joseph's advice, but appoints him to the rule. And what, why, why does Pharaoh do it? Well, he recognizes, verse 38, that the Spirit of God is in Joseph. Pharaoh follows Joseph in giving the credit to God. He says in verse 39, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Pharaoh recognises about Joseph that there's a wisdom that comes from from beyond him. There's a wisdom that's greater than, than human wisdom. And so Pharaoh sets Joseph over the whole land. He, he takes his own ring off and puts it on Joseph. He gets him to ride in a second chariot uh, with people calling out before him, by the knee. By the knee. And that last part is particularly significant. Because what do we have here? We have a mighty nation of the world We have a world power being commanded to bow the knee before a son of Jacob. Being commanded to bow the knee before the offspring of Abraham. And surely we can't read that without thinking of God's promise to Abraham. In you and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here 
a nation of the earth bows before Joseph in whom they are going to be blessed. Now, of course, Joseph isn't the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is. But as the Egyptians here bow the knee to Joseph, it's pointing forward to the ultimate son of Abraham, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As Joseph is, is left in that pit, you know, what are the chances that, that, that a world superpower is going to bow the knee before him? If you told him, you told his brothers, they thought, no way that could happen. If you look out at the world today, you might say, well, what are the chances that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? But it is, it is absolutely certain. It is just as certain as it would happen to Joseph. Another interesting little parallel between Joseph and Jesus. Uh, both are, are 30 years old uh, when they begin their, their public ministry. Joseph here 30 years old when he enters the service of Pharaoh. But what about verse 45 when Joseph marries the, the daughter of a, a pagan priest? Uh, are the wheels going to fall off the, the parallels between Joseph and Jesus here? And, you know, if that, if that happens, it's, it's all right because human beings are, are sinful, human beings are flawed. But actually, from all that we know of Joseph's character, I think it would be uncharitable, uncharitable just to assume that he's marrying an unbeliever here. If Joseph, in one conversation, can get even Pharaoh talking about the one true God. What influence might he have had on others round about him? Asenath may have been the daughter of a pagan priest, but by the time she marries Joseph, she may well have come to know the one true God. It is the sort of thing God delights to do. God delights to save unlikely people. Uh, and this would have been an unlikely person to believe in the one true God. So I think those who, who assume that Joseph marries an unbeliever here or, or is forced into it by Pharaoh, uh, I think maybe jump too quickly uh, to that. But surely there's symbolism here as well. If Joseph represents Jesus, then the fact that Joseph takes a bride from a pagan background is a picture of Jesus taking the church as his bride, people who by nature had no interest in him. So, yes, admittedly, we can't say for sure whether Asenath was a believer by the time Joseph married her. I, I would say we, we should more likely assume she is than she isn't. Would Joseph really be, be willing to spend years in jail for refusing to commit adultery and then turn around and marry someone who didn't love God? But what we can say for definite about the marriage is that despite all that had happened to him, Joseph hasn't forgotten who he is. He hasn't forgotten who he is. By the time of his marriage, Joseph has been in Egypt for his entire adult life. He's been given an Egyptian name. He's married an Egyptian wife. 
by the time his brothers arrive, they don't recognize him. He looks to them like an Egyptian, just like he looks to everyone else like an Egyptian. And in light of that, I think the most amazing verses in this chapter, some of the most amazing verses in this whole section are verses 51 and 52. When Joseph has two sons and he gives them Hebrew names, Joseph looks like an Egyptian, he he talks like an Egyptian, his wife's an Egyptian, he rules over Egypt, but he doesn't give his children Egyptian names. Why? Because he hasn't forgotten who he is. What's even more amazing about this is when we remember that there is no nation of Israel at this time. There's just a small clan. There's Joseph's father and his brothers, many of whom had conspired together to sell him. And yet those are the people Joseph chooses to identify with. This is Joseph's opportunity to say who he belongs to. And he says... By giving them these names, I am a Hebrew. When he names Manasseh, he says, God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house. But he's clearly talking there about the negative aspects of his father's house. If he completely wanted to to forget his upbringing, he wouldn't be giving them Hebrew names. He wouldn't be talking about God. If Joseph wanted to, to deconstruct his faith, as the, the, the trendy thing to do now is there wouldn't be any mention of God or of where he came from. And this becomes even clearer when the second boy is born and he, he, he calls him Ephraim, saying, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Because where's the land of his affliction? It's not Canaan. The land of his affliction, it's not the land where he was hated by his brothers and soul, but rather he calls Egypt the land of his affliction. He's second in command. He's ruling over the nation. People are bowing the knee before him. But in Joseph's eyes, Egypt is the land of his affliction. And the land where he was persecuted, that is his real home. Despite all Joseph's outward prosperity, he knows that Egypt isn't home. And the passing of years hasn't made him forget that. And these Hebrew names would in turn be a reminder of that to his boys as they grew up in a pagan Egyptian culture. I'm sure Joseph would often have told them, Boys, we may live in Egypt, but this isn't our true home. This is home for the people around us, but it's not home for us. God has prepared a better country for us. And of course, we need to bring up our children telling them the same thing. That we're not to live like the people around about us because we belong to a different country. Boys and girls, that's why we live differently from those around us. That's because, that's why we go to church and they don't. That's why we have family worship and they don't. That's why we give God thanks for our food and they don't. It's because we belong to heaven and one day we're going to heaven and people around us aren't and they don't understand any of this. But heaven is our true home. 
So we need, to, we need to tell this to our children, but we also need to remember it for ourselves. And I wonder, do we struggle with this at times, particularly when things are going well for us here, particularly when our plans are working out? It's easier to remember that this isn't our true home when things are going badly because we can take comfort in the fact that this isn't home. But for Joseph here, everything is going well for him, family-wise, career-wise. And yet he never makes the mistake of thinking that Egypt is home. Egypt is the land of his affliction. In one sense, it's the land of his exaltation, but, but ultimately it's the land of his affliction. And it is the same for us. Let us not forget where our true home is. Let's not forget that this week. This world is the land of our affliction. It is not our true home. Let's not try and settle in and get too comfortable here. Let's not live as if, as if this is our ultimate destination. And yet if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this evening, the opposite is true. This isn't the land of your affliction. This is the best that you'll ever have it. No matter how hard your life on earth may be, no matter what you may have gone through at the hands of others, this world is the best that you'll ever have it. But for the believer, we follow the pattern of Joseph and the pattern of our Saviour. First suffering, then glory, first humiliation, then exaltation. And so if it feels that large parts of your life just now are suffering, if humiliation is a better word to describe your life than exaltation, then nothing has gone wrong. Glory and exaltation are coming, but not yet. And don't look for them in this world. So Joseph is exalted, but he doesn't forget who he is. And he doesn't forget his people. A guy who I follow on Twitter is a trainee pastor in England. He used to get the school bus with Emma Watson. They both went in for Harry Potter auditions. She got the part and he didn't. The last time he saw her was at a party. A few of them were late for it because of a school play. So she sent her driver to pick them up in her Lexus. They're not in contact today. Why would they be? She was exalted. He wasn't. She got the part. He didn't. And if we know people who go on to do great things, it's our worry, isn't it, that... If they make it big, they'll forget about us. Of all the people who go on to do great things, surely it is only a minority who keep in touch with the ordinary people they knew growing up. And Christians can have the same worry about the Lord Jesus as well. Yes, on earth Jesus was tender and compassionate. Yes, on earth Jesus had time for for anybody who would come up to him and, and pour out their heart before him. But now he's in heaven. Will he forget about us? Will he think differently about us? That's a worry that the Puritan Thomas Goodwin addressed in, in a book entitled The Heart of Christ. Or to give it its full title, The Heart of Christ in Heaven for Sinners on Earth. 
And in that book, Goodwin seeks to show from Scripture how in heaven today the Lord Jesus has the same heart for sinners that he had when he was on earth. Goodwin says in his book that if we had talked with Jesus on earth like Mary or like Peter, we would have been so bold as to ask him anything. We were thinking a couple of weeks ago in the morning of how Mary and Martha both said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yes, there are problems with, with what they say, but, but the point is that when the crisis hit, they weren't afraid to go to Jesus and pour out their hearts before him, uh, to lay their hearts open before him. And he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't tell them to remember who they're talking to. Goodwin says that we fear that now Jesus has gone into a far country. Now he's put on glory and immortality. His heart towards us might be changed, but it hasn't. We looked at John 14 this morning. If we go back to, to the chapter before that, John 13, we read uh, there that Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and going back to God, well, how would you fill in the blank? Knowing that Jesus was going back to God, he, he forgot about his disciples and started thinking about where he was going. No, knowing that he was going back to God, he washed his disciples' feet. And then when he rises from the dead, the first thing he calls these men who have abandoned them, abandoned him, is my brothers. And the last thing his people see as he goes up to heaven is his hands lifted up in blessing. This is not a saviour who's about to forget his people when his exaltation is complete. Joseph, when he was exalted, he didn't forget about his people. Uh, We'll see that even more clearly in future weeks. And you can be sure that the Lord Jesus in his exaltation this evening will not forget about you in fact with with joseph as we'll go on to see in later weeks the very reason he's exalted is for the good of his people joseph's exaltation was good news for them and jesus exaltation is good news for us because our king reigns on the throne of the universe and he does so for the good of his church Tonight our high priest is in the throne room of heaven and he is there presenting our requests to his father. Joseph's exaltation was good news for his people and Jesus' exaltation is good news for us. And so at long last the tables are turned for Joseph here. After spending half his life Facing circumstances he would never have chosen in the land of his affliction. It all begins to make sense as God exalts him to the king's right hand. And as we'll see in future weeks, that very exaltation would be for the good of his people. Even though they didn't realise it yet. And what a thought tonight that we have a saviour in heaven exalted to the king's right hand. From where far from forgetting about us, he delights to pour out his blessing on us. Amen. Well, we'll close tonight singing Psalm 105.
Psalm 105, 12 to 16, singing of the story of Joseph, uh, his humiliation and exaltation uh, as a, a picture of the humiliation and exaltation of the Lord Jesus. Psalm 105, it's page 255, uh, tune 123. Verse 12, he, he sent a man before them, the, the third line. For them, it was Joseph. For us, it's the Lord Jesus. God has sent someone before us to make everything ready for us. And so, saying these words, thinking on one level of the exaltation of Joseph, but let it point you forward to the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. Verse 16 over the page. He made him master of his house with power did him invest and made him ruler over all the things that he possessed. And who is ruler over all that God possesses tonight? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our Saviour, our great High Priest. So verses 12 to 16, let's praise God.